when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Welcome to the From Hostage to Hero podcast. My name is Sari Delamont, aka the Attorney Whisperer. I have to apologize to my listeners for such a break in the podcast. I've been working on my book, From Hostage to Hero, due out this year, but now I am back in the swing of things and looking forward to talking with you regularly. So to get us back on track, in the first four podcasts, I introduced you to the concept of juror as hostage. We talked about the SCARF model from David Rock, author of Your Brain at Work, and the five social needs that when threatened can activate the survival instinct in the brain. And those things are status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. To reverse the threat jury selection creates, we've been looking at what I call the five Ps. Preserve status, provide certainty, protect autonomy, promote relatedness, and prove fairness. We've been looking at the first three in the last podcast, status, certainty, and autonomy. Today, let's look at how to promote relatedness. Now, years ago, I traveled to Wisconsin to help an attorney pick a jury for a medical malpractice case. Wadir started on Monday, and so the attorney and I, we decided to have a mock jury on Sunday for practice, and we scheduled them to arrive, I think it was 1.30 in the afternoon. Now, he also scheduled a lunch meeting so that I could meet the plaintiff. Unfortunately, though, the restaurant screwed up our order, and we ended up being over an hour late to the mock jury. So we walked into the church where the mock jury had assembled and the attorney was shocked. I mean, even though this group had sat together for over an hour waiting for our arrival, the room was completely silent. No one spoke. No one made eye contact. I mean, the air was thick with tension. This is what you face in the courtroom, isn't it? I mean, we think it's hard to get a hostile group to talk to us because they're irritated that they've been forced to participate, but that's only part of the story. Most of us wouldn't go to a cocktail party where we didn't know anyone else, much less jury selection, but this is exactly what we ask jurors to do. Go it alone. Jurors don't know you, they don't know defense counsel, they don't know the judge, and they certainly don't know each other. The brain views this as an attack. The number one thing that you can do then in voir dire is to tap into the reward center of the juror's brain by forming the group. Groups are the most powerful organism on the earth. We want to form the group, not just to promote relatedness between jurors, but to also make it easier to get a verdict in our favor. Now, a lot of people think that time is what forms the group, meaning that Simply by being together, the group's going to form, they're going to bond, but that is not the case. Time alone does not form groups. You do. For example, when my best friend Rachel got pregnant, she decided to attempt to deliver her daughter medication-free. Now, not only did she do this with one daughter, no pain medication, she did it with her second daughter exactly the same way. I mean, she's a rock star. 
Now she's my hero. So when I found myself unexpectedly pregnant at the ripe old age of 42, literally my chart said elderly on it. Um, and yes, at 42, I did know what caused pregnancy, but I just, um, didn't think that I would have a viable one having lost two previously, but this one stuck and I'm glad it did. But I decided at that time that I would also birth my child without medication. Now, as you might imagine, this is not an easy thing to do and it takes training, uh, 10 weeks of training to be exact. And I know this because I signed my husband and I up for a 10 week class to learn how to push a kid out of my nether regions without any pain medication. Classes were held in the instructor's living room, which is a little odd, but, uh, and there we were, you know, eight of us couples, we'd all signed up to attend this two hour training every week. And during that two hours, the teacher would discuss the different aspects of childbirth, have us try an exercise. Um, afterwards there'd be snacks, so on and so forth. Now, I'd love to tell you that over those 10 weeks, the group bonded and we shared our progress over email and at meetings, but that actually didn't happen. The group never formed. Think about that for a minute. 10 weeks together, two hours a week. And even though we spent over 20 hours in each other's presence discussing seriously intimate topics, we never bonded. Why? The instructor never formed the group. Outside of the initial introductions, the instructor never had the class members engage with each other during the class. Unformed groups, and this is what's really important to understand, not only increase a juror's lack of safety, they are really hard to work with. For example, in an unformed group, you, the attorney, have to connect with each and every juror. This takes time, and you often don't have that time or energy, and you can't spare it, even if you did. Additionally, when attempting to connect with each and every juror, you bore the other jurors who aren't participating. Boisdier becomes a series of one-on-one -on -one conversations, and that is a snooze fest in any context. Unformed groups are also incredibly difficult to read because you have to observe each individual now instead of watching the group, something we'll talk about in future podcasts. So group formation benefits both jurors and you in a variety of ways. Here's a couple of key points. One, forming the group creates safety, as I've said. Humans are pack animals. It feels unsafe to navigate new territory, such as trial, for example, on our own. So when jurors feel related to each other, they now feel safe and that safety reverses the threat response. Now, in addition, jurors will need to feel safe to be able to learn about the case. People cannot learn unless they feel safe. That's huge. Two, forming the group reduces the need for autonomy. As you remember, we've talked about autonomy as one of the things in the SCARF model that jurors have this lack of autonomy and that creates a brain threat. But once the group is formed, there's less need for autonomy. That's the one need in the SCARF model, by the way, that we are least able to compensate for. But when people feel that they belong and are doing important work, they're more willing to give up their autonomy. So that's really huge. Three, and I think a lot of you don't think about this, but it's true, forming the group allows you to lead. If there's no group, there's no need for a leader, period. People lead themselves. That's the basic definition of autonomy. But once the group is formed, they need and are willing to be led, especially if you're the one that led them in, or formed them, I should say, in the first place. So how do you form a group? 
Well, some of this will be difficult to discuss over a podcast, but I'm going to give it a try because groups are primarily formed non-verbally. There are four non-verbal areas I want you to pay attention to in terms of group formation. What people are doing with their eyes, what they're doing with their voice, what they're doing with their body, and how they're breathing. So here it is. To get a group to form, you must get them to first look at each other. Next, talk to each other. Third, do things together. And finally, breathe together. So let's talk about this. Have you ever attended like a CLE or a seminar of some kind and you arrive early in the morning and find all of the other attendees sitting there alone at their tables, eyes cast down, perhaps reading the course materials, but the room is completely silent. This is the hallmark of an unformed group. On the other hand, have you noticed that maybe on the second day or maybe the second afternoon, you walk in after lunch, people are chatting, having coffee, making eye contact. That's because the group has now formed. Hopefully, if the uh, instructor has done a good job doing that over the day one and morning of day two. I mean, think about this in the terms of the last cocktail party or networking event you attended. If there were people there that you didn't know, you probably avoided eye contact. I mean, this is pretty natural. However, at some point in the night, hopefully someone introduced you to someone else. That introduction now gave you permission to look at each other. So this is what we have to do with jurors during voir dire. Although we aren't passing drinks around, although that would make (laughs) voir dire a whole lot easier, uh, we can still use the introduction template to get jurors to look at each other. Now here's, here's how. Once a juror has finished speaking, hold your hand out to him or her And then gesture, and this is really important, and look at another juror and ask, is what you're saying any different than name of the second juror? Now, it's very, very important that you look at the second juror, not the first, even though that's going to feel incredibly awkward. We are trained to maintain eye contact with the person who's speaking, but merely gesturing to another person while holding eye contact with the first won't make them look there. People look where you look. If you look at the second person while asking the first person the question, there's nearly an 80% chance that the first person will turn and look. I've seen it happen over and over again, but you have to train yourself to take your eyes from the first person and with your gesture, move your eye contact and your hands over to the second. What you're non-verbally doing is saying, hey, I am giving you permission to look at this other juror. When you do that, the awkwardness is now removed. Now they can look and talk to each other as much as they want, and most likely they'll continue to do that throughout Wadir and hopefully otherwise. Continue to do this with as many jurors as possible and your group will start to form. So that really covers both, and there are other things, but this is on this podcast, I just want to give you one tip. That really covers both getting jurors to look and talk to each other. The third one, getting them to do things together, you can use really simple things like having everyone raise their hand at the same time. Um, How can you get them to raise their hand at the same time? Well, you can say things like, uh, how many people here have ever attended jury selection before? Or if you're pretty sure that most people have not, or there'll be some who have and some who haven't, you can be funny and say, who here would rather be somewhere else this morning? Again, even more, good morning, and wait for them to say good morning. 
So simple things like that will help you get the jury to do things together. Just saying good morning and waiting for the whole group to respond, asking people who here's ever heard of beyond a reasonable doubt, something that you know nearly all the jurors have heard, that will help. So anything like that, that you can get them doing things together, they're going to start to feel like a, a group. When people do things together, they feel and act as though they are a group. I mean, think about this in terms of the military. Why does the military have soldiers march? To form the group. I mean, they do everything together. The entire concept of the military is to work the idea of individual out of the person who is signed up. They make their beds at the same time in the morning in the same way. They get up at the same time. Everything they do, they do it uniformly and together as a group. The individual is not even a point of focus. Same thing. Why do we sing national anthem at sporting events? To form the group. They're all group formation activities. So the more things that you can have the group doing together, the easier it will be to get your group to form. Don't overlook these little things that you can do in jury selection that you think are a waste of time or are gimmicky. They're not gimmicky. What you're doing is you're creating a group that feels comfortable with, it, with each other. And that is one of the most primary uh, safety creating things that you can do in jury selection. Now, finally, you can help the group uh, form by getting them to breathe. We know the jurors are in fight or flight because jury selection invokes that threat response. We've been talking about that the last four podcasts. So we can reverse that fight or flight response in many ways, but the primary way is to breathe deeply and get them to breathe deeply. Research shows that listeners will adopt the breathing pattern of the speaker. I always remember speaking uh, at Rick Friedman's Take Back the Courtroom. This was years ago. And we were talking about breathing in, in the portion of my program that I was allowed to be on stage. I loved being there. And we showed a clip from Rick's propofol case. And we had, I think the 30B6 representative was on the stand um, from the company that had created the um, vials in this, in this um, program, or I'm sorry, in this case. And he was absolutely sputtering. Just every question that Rick asked, the the, the man was just, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, no, that's not what I'm saying. You know, Rick was completely calm. This guy was not. The point being that when we stopped showing the clip, I turned and I asked the audience, I said, how are you breathing right now? And nearly all 200 people in that moment just went, <sighs> they were holding their breath. Just watching this two to three minute clip created this feeling of having to hold their breath because they were starting to adopt the breathing pattern of the speaker. This means that you have more power than you know to affect the breathing of the group. If you aren't breathing well due to nervousness or anxiety, your jurors will remain in fight or flight themselves. So you've got to get your own breathing under control. We're going to have some podcasts on breathing. I talk a lot about breathing. If you've ever been to my seminars, you know that's a big deal for me. So we'll do more of that in in future podcasts. But for now, you can practice breathing at home by starting a meditation practice or doing yoga 
just simply sitting for 10 minutes, set your iPhone timer and just focus on your breath, whatever it takes to get your breathing under control, because the jury's going to respond to how you breathe and you've got to be breathing slow and low to get them to be breathing slow and low. And that also is going to form the group. Why? Because it communicates we're safe and we're comfortable. Most of us breathe high or hold our breath in situations that are stressful or tense. So getting them to breathe and relax sends a message to their brain that they're safe. I cannot overemphasize this enough. And again, we're going to have several podcasts on this because it's so important. But for now, in terms of group formation and relatedness, just know that your breathing is paramount to getting the jurors to breathe. An attorney from Oklahoma flew out to work with me on Voidir. And the day before our mock jury, I taught him all of the things that I just taught you in the above mentioned group formation techniques. But he was skeptical. He said, are you sure this will get the group to form? And I said, yes. Groups don't just form by being together. You've got to non-verbally help them. So the next morning, our mock jury arrived and they filed into the room and the attorney watched on the screen from the other room because we're all wired where you can see the jury from a back room. And one by one, each juror would get up, go get coffee, and then return to his or her seat, speaking to no one and making zero eye contact. Now, that is a hallmark sign of a group that is not formed. So I popped my head back in the room where he was and I said, are you ready? He was pacing back and forth and he said, yeah, I'm ready. So he comes out and I'm telling you, within 20 minutes, those of you who have limited voir dire, you'll always push back on this. You go, sorry, how can you do this with 20 minutes? I say, you can do this in 20 minutes. I've seen it happen. Because within 20 minutes, this group, this, these jurors, which were actually individuals at that point, not a group, they had been sitting quietly and stiffly just moments before. They're now chatting, not just with the attorney, but with each other. I mean, at, at times, the attorney could not get a word in edgewise. Now, once the mock jury left, of course, the attorney spins around and he says, you hired actors, you rigged this. You know, he was joking, of course, but he was so amazed at how quickly you can form the group just using some simple nonverbal techniques. If you want to help jurors move from hostage to hero, you've got to first preserve their status, second, provide them with certainty, Third, protect their autonomy. And if you don't know how to do those things, go back and listen to the the three podcasts before this one. And you also have to promote their relatedness. That is absolutely central. Next time, we'll talk about the fifth and final P, prove fairness. Until we meet again, I invite you to find your voice and amplify it. Thanks everyone for joining us. I'll see you here next time. That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sorry Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sorry's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today, and until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.